0: But we'll start this morning with a warning, or maybe it's a risk assessment, from one of Australia's most respected military strategists, Dr. David Kilcullen, on the challenge to future Australian security posed by China's build up of ballistic missiles, and why our whole strategic thinking needs to adapt to some unpalatable realities about allies and others. Dr Kilcullens carefully laid out a summary of China's recent missile developments and capabilities in the journal Australian Foreign Affairs released this week. He details a fairly dire picture of Australia's strategic position in the light of these developments, unless we act now to ensure these new weapons aren't deployed beyond the Chinese mainland. Now, none of this scenario may ever happen, he emphasises, but from a military standpoint, I'm quoting him here, strategists understand future threats by analysing capability, because that could take some time to build, rather than intent, which could change instantly. It's an important distinction, which I'll ask him to flesh out. Welcome back to Saturday Extra.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Why does this distinction matter?
1: Well, as you said, it really is a matter of timing. So uh, it typically takes a fair amount of time to develop a major new capability. And we've actually seen that over the past few years with Chinese anti-ship ballistic missiles in particular, Uh, And the intent may very well be portrayed as peaceful or preventive or defensive when that capability is being developed, but intent can change in a moment. So when we think about future capability, we tend to, or when we think about about risk or threat, we tend to think about capability as distinct from intention. That's a well-established tradition in Australian strategic thinking. Uh, I'm simply suggesting in this piece in, Australian Foreign Affairs that we might want to take a bit of a look at uh, china 's ballistic missile capabilities and how that might affect Australia in a future conflict
0: mm, yes I was just I, I'm just trying to distinguish you know in terms of the way planners think and then write uh, and people receive it there there sometimes can be a you know there's the panic can ensue that's a, which you say you're not about
1: absolutely i mean the there is no current public evidence that the Chinese have any plans to deploy the missiles that we're talking about here uh, outside of of China's uh, mainland. I'm simply pointing to the fact that they can do that and to the rapid growth in those systems. And uh, in some ways, it's a relatively simple exercise of simply taking a map and plotting over it, uh, you know, a circle that shows the range of these weapon systems. And understanding what the implications of that are.
0: Well, let's look at the Chinese Army's, uh, the PLA's new additions to missile capabilities. The PLA's pioneered this class of missiles called, as you said, then, anti-ship ballistic missiles, which, is the na- as the name suggests, are designed to destroy surface warships. What can these weapons do? Why do they matter?
1: Well, they matter for two reasons, and we'll come back to the issue of time in a minute, if that's okay. But just in terms of capability, firstly, they have... Uh, very long range. Um, the the two main systems that they uh, deploy have ranges between about uh, 1,500 uh, and 4,000 kilometers, uh, so f- very long range. Uh, and they descend from uh, outside the atmosphere at a hypersonic speed, so faster than Mach 5, uh, five times the speed of sound, And currently there is not good evidence that the US or anybody else has uh, an ability to defeat these weapons once they're launched against a major fleet unit like an aircraft carrier or an amphibious ship. Um, Even with a non-nuclear warhead, these missiles are quite capable of destroying uh, a very major ship, but of course they can also be fitted with uh, nuclear warheads. But perhaps the, the more important point is that, this issue of time. So I'll I'll just draw a contrast between the ships that get targeted and the missiles that are targeting them. So the US just launched uh, its latest aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald Ford. It took them 13 years to build that ship and it cost about $20 billion to build. By contrast, you can assemble an anti-ship ballistic missile in a couple of weeks. So the Chinese produced about one Uh, DF-26, which is the um, most capable anti-ship ballistic missile, every 10 days. Uh, And what that means, if you run the numbers, which I do in the article, is you could see anywhere between about 48 to 72 missiles being targeted against every aircraft carrier. So even if you could defeat one or two of these missiles, if you're launching several dozen against an aircraft carrier, the chances of ship surviving what we call a saturation attack uh, is, is pretty slim. And that changes the whole calculus of how the US Navy thinks about where its ships need to go in the Pacific. And as I pointed out in the article, that has some pretty significant impacts for Australia.
0: Yeah, and I want to come to that. Uh, where can the DF-26 reach then? What's its scope?
1: So one of the weirdnesses about these missiles um, is that if you go and look on websites, for example, the um, the missile threat website, which is maintained by a US think tank or many of the others, what they will do is take a map of China and draw a kind of a squiggly line showing how far you could reach if you parked a missile launcher right on the, uh, you know, the furthest extremity of uh, of of China's territory that's not how the Chinese deploy them um, they they deploy them in at the moment in um, uh, Henan province and a number of other places closer to the center of the country um, and you know from the location where the first pla rocket force, the F-26 unit was deployed, they can reach Borneo, um, reach the Vogelkop, which is the, the bird's head-shaped peninsula on the northwest tip of, uh, of in Erie and Jaya. Uh, so they get out to quite close to uh, our region but not quite to Australia. But, of course, the issue is that these things are road mobile, they can be moved on a ship, and China has actually demonstrated the capability to place cruise missiles in uh, in containers and put them in container ships. So if you were to move one of those to any of the several ports that the Chinese are developing across the region, uh, you would be able to pretty heavily dominate a ring of about 4,000 kilometres around that point. And as I pointed in the article, if you link up all the various different ports that the Chinese either control or are building or have um, expressed an interest in creating a naval base, Uh, you get a pretty disturbing picture of uh, essentially what we call an anti-access area denial bubble. Sorry for all the jargon, but Mm -hmm. what that means is just an umbrella within which it's going to be really difficult for uh, sea or air forces to move, particularly sea.
0: And just name some of those ports so we get a bit of a feeling people will be rushing to their atlas.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, working from uh, west to east, uh, Djibouti, which is in, in the Horn of Africa. Um, so r- right on the on the Red Sea, uh, a port called Hambantota, which is at the southern extent of, uh, Sri Lanka. And the missile range from there gets you to Indonesia. Uh, there's Guada in Pakistan. There's a port called Riam in Cambodia, which is actually a Chinese Cambodian shared naval base under construction. Um, and then the one that I, I point to, particularly in the article, is the discussion about whether China might, uh, create a base in the Solomon Islands. Right. Now, as you know, that's been, you probably want to talk about that in a slightly different mm-hmm. way, but I'm not suggesting it's happening. I'm suggesting that if it did happen, it would be pretty significant.
0: Now, two questions that struck me. From what I have also read, uh, these hypersonic missiles that you're talking about, and, and there's another aspect that you talk about, hypersonic glide vehicles as well, that you discussed in the article. Are, are they actually proven yet? Do we know they work? Isn't there some doubt about that? <laughs>
1: So the hypersonic glide vehicle is still in testing and it's quite a different thing from what we're talking about here. It's almost like a mini, it's um, shaped a bit like a space shuttle. It carries a warhead, uh, it gets launched into space and essentially skips around in orbit and then comes down at a point uh, anywhere on the Earth's surface. And those are very much in uh, in development, but they're certainly not proven. The anti-ship ballistic missile, though, is proven In November of 2020, the Chinese... But it has to sort
0: of go outside the Earth's atmosphere and come back in. It's like a parabolic arc, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so a traditional ballistic missile, as the name suggests, follows a ballistic path, right, a parabolic path. Um, The hypersonic glide vehicle, the HGV, doesn't follow that system. It essentially bounces around the outside of the atmosphere uh, and comes in at whatever angle the oh, um, the controllers want, but that's not what precisely what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a very proven, you know, 1940s technology. Oh, I see. A, I see. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but in November 2020, the Chinese claimed to be able to hit a moving target at sea at a range of a couple of thousand miles with the uh, the the weapons we're talking about, and that, of course, would be a very significant development for. You know the a, a foreign navy.
0: Okay, so David Gilcullen you're suggesting in this article, which is quite complex, that it's very much in our strategic interest to stop the Chinese from getting these weapons into places like Solomon Islands, where they could isolate us from our allies, Um, and that even the potential placement, you write, of these ASBMs would be almost as significant as their actual deployment and would reduce Washington's appetite to help us in a crisis. So which is a very big statement. How then might we change China's risk calculus? That seems to be one of the sort of key things you're trying to propose.
1: Yeah, and let me just quickly say that there's no evidence that the Solomon Islands uh, would be you know, willing to entertain the presence of Chinese missiles. That's not even been discussed between the Solomon Islands government and the Chinese, although they have talked about, as you know, uh, a Chinese base there. Uh, But as I pointed out in the article, it's not too difficult to imagine a scenario where uh, a missile could be deployed without the knowledge of of a local government or indeed with its knowledge uh, anywhere to these ports that we've been talking about. But, yeah, I suggest that um, once there's a missile system in place in a location, and let's just take the Solomon Islands as an example, um, the implications are are pretty severe. I mean, if you put a DF-26 in the Solomons, it could strike ships basically anywhere west of Fiji, anywhere north of Brisbane or east of Wewak. They could stop ships on, on our side leaving Cairns, Townsville or Brisbane. They could block transit through the Torres Strait. Uh, they could interdict export terminals in Queensland and New South Wales and they would essentially deny uh, a very large chunk of our sh- sh- seaborne trade which goes through, uh, the Solomon Strait or the Solomon Sea between New Island and, and Bougainville. So it's it's a pretty major development to, to place uh, a missile in a place like that. And as you said, the Chinese have hundreds of these missiles. The US has 11 carriers and risking a major national asset in an area of sea that's denied or covered by this kind of anti-access area denial system would be a really, really big step for the U.S. And it's quite likely that in even in a major conflict between China and the United States, uh, that U.S. commanders just wouldn't be willing to risk these very you know, precious assets uh, in order to get into that area. I point in the article to the um, Battle of the Coral Sea in 1942 where a U.S.-Australian combined force defeated the Japanese attempt to sailor task group uh, into the Coral Sea, it's quite possible that that kind of battle wouldn't even be possible in a future conflict if there was already a Chinese missile presence in a place like the Solomons. So that's why I suggest that if it does occur, it would be extraordinarily difficult for us to react to that. It would probably take the entire Australian Defence Force, uh, Air, Navy uh, and Army to react to just that one threat if we were to try to remove what we call a lily pad in the region. So that's why prevention is super important, both in a diplomatic and political sense but also militarily.
0: Well, yes, just because I'm looking at the time, because there are two other very interesting interventions, contributions this week, um, putting other perspectives, I suppose. Uh, Alan DuPont, the um, uh, guest we've had several times in the program, writing in The Australian this week, said that, the, in fact, for all the talk uh, about the Chinese uh, competition, that the US was very much on the comeback um, and that the balance of power in Asia was actually starting to shift away from China as Biden's policy of constrainment starts to bite and that actually the US State Department has been doing very good diplomacy. And second, a thoughtful piece from the veteran diplomat John McCarthy suggesting that the bulk of writing from you and others is focuses on the combat readiness and deterrence and so on, weapons, personnel and so on, much less on security policy, namely working with others to diminish the risk of hostilities. Less chest beating, more talking, he says. Now, how do you respond to both of those, you know, I think really worthwhile challenges uh, to people like yourself?
1: Well, I I don't actually see it as a challenge, right? I see it as an and-and rather than an either-or. It is critically important that we avoid a war with China and diplomacy and uh, an understanding of regional relationships uh, is super important, as is the focus on... Uh, you know, changing any calculus by anybody, including the US, actually, that might be uh, seeking a, a conflict. But it's important that that is also dis, uh, informed by, if you like, the hard missile arithmetic of, of what we're talking about here. So there's a there's a hard defense discussion that we need to have to understand the realities of what these different weapon systems mean and how they can be used and how that affects the. Uh, the diplomatic debate. So this is in no way to go against that, and I'm certainly not suggesting that we ought to be seeking a, a conflict here, in fact, quite the opposite. But as I think it was Bismarck who said that, you know, um, uh, diplomacy without military force is like music without instruments, right? There's, there's You've got to understand the underlying military dynamics if you're going to have an effective uh, diplomatic strategy. And I would suggest actually that our government does understand that. And there's nothing in this article that Anybody in the you know in the military or in, in Defat doesn't understand, but mm-hmm. I think it's important that the public understands it as well.
0: You do, however, go on to say we need to quotes consider the risks involved in continuing to tie Australia so tightly to an alliance partner that's the US that is it clearly in relative, if not absolute, decline, and that we have to be realistic about the limits of ANZUS. Now, um, beyond that, what else do you think we should be doing now? To, to in more in more preventive behaviour, as you say, so that, in fact, the Chinese don't think about using this beyond Chinese shores?
1: Well, I think it's really important to, where we can, reduce tension with China and not sort of fall into a pattern of um, sleepwalking into war, which has been a, a term that's been thrown about quite a lot in the last uh, year or two and I think is, is a, a real danger if we're not careful. Um, I think we need to be really working to strengthen uh, our regional relationships, particularly with the Solomons, but with everybody in the region. Uh, So reduce tension with China where we can strengthen our regional relationships. I think we also need to be demonstrating the capability to react to or to prevent uh, something like what I've outlined uh, potentially happening. And of course, that's a current topic of debate because there's a defence strategic review going on, Mm. looking at what kinds of capabilities we need to have. And there's been a historic debate in Australia between, you know, those who think we need uh, a large military, a large army, and those who think that we can rely purely on, uh, you know, significant air and naval forces. What I'm suggesting here is that neither answer works. You need a joint force that can deploy in the region and uh, operate all the way from current conditions through a crisis up to an actual high-intensity conflict.
0: Oh, very bracing, David. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.
1: Yep, thanks for having me.
0: David Kilcullen, a military strategist uh, who has served uh, for 25 years for the Australian and United States governments, and his article is in Australian Foreign Affairs. It was also uh, summarised in The Weekend Australian last week. That'll leave you thinking. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you
1: beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.